you're listening to a life-changing podcast that does a deep dive into what's behind the silence, the truth no one wants to talk about, featuring two thought-provoking professional coaches who specialize in linguistic patterns of thought, feelings, and behavior. As NLP practitioners, certified and life-changing, the dynamic duel, Stacey Cutright and Stephanie Demmel. Welcome back, friends, to What's Behind the Silence, the truth no one wants to talk about. Today, we have a special guest, and it's Dr. Adam Coffey here in the Dallas area. And he is a um, licensed therapist counselor for couples. He works with therapeutics. He also does some coaching with executives and um, attorneys and people of that status. So, Dr. Coffey, thank you today for joining us. I know that we only have you short for a short bit of time, but we are so excited to hear from you. And more importantly, I, I'm, I've known you for several years and um, your ability to help people is tremendous and so welcome. And we can't wait for our listeners to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your inviting me on to your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. And today we're going to talk about relationships specifically. And we've asked Dr. Coffey to come on and talk about, you know, some of the, the things that he sees when relationships, uh, couples come to him, um, some of the issues he sees, and, you know, maybe be able to give us some tips here that will help our listeners. Right, right. You know, as you said, Stephanie, I, I do specialize in working with couples. And of course, most couples come in and they're concerned about communication patterns, but I think uh, due to something that you and I discussed earlier, this uh, coming out of the pandemic has really had a, a significant impact on couples' relationships. And I think the biggest impact I've noticed is this idea about how they're balancing out time together versus time apart. Because for so many couples working from home, especially if they're dual income, the idea of having that much time together has really uh, created some troubles. And so we've seen some interesting uh, indices around measurements of isolation uh, and or depressive symptoms and or anxiety symptoms. Certainly suicide rates have not been favorable in the last couple of years uh, at all. Uh, we've seen increases in addictive behavior as well. Uh, and then we've seen decreases in sex for a lot of monogamous couples. Uh, and so there's been some really interesting things that, that have happened as a result uh, in part of uh, being sort of locked down for the last couple of years and, and then coming out of that and, and seeing, okay, what do we do now with these partnerships that we value and that we cherish, but that have really in some ways changed uh, as it relates to this international change that we've experienced. What are some of the things that um, specifically with the couples that are struggling to find that balance with, you know, spending time alone or trying to reconnect? What are some of the things that you see or maybe some of the possible solutions that might be helpful to them when they find themselves in those situations? I think one of the things that's really helpful, Stephanie, is this idea of and for some people, it's an idea that they've not really explored at all before. It's the idea of how do I understand myself in partnership, right? So how do I understand apart from my partner, 
how much alone time I need versus how much social or partnership time I need. And so that's been something that I think has really helped people increase their level of, of awareness for themselves. Because if there are two people who have been dual income, for example, uh, or there's been one at home and one at work, uh, they may not have been as aware of that for themselves individually as, as this kind of work from home scenario put people into. And they were like almost forced to look at it for the first time, or at least look at it in a different way. So I think oftentimes what I see is I, I see people evaluating that for themselves and then having those kind of dialogues with their partners about, hey, what has been your own personal process in this? What has been your own increased self-awareness in this? And how can we uh, create some sort of overlap in all of this so that our partnership is, is thriving from this work from home situation rather than, rather than really sort of deteriorating? I think that's interesting because go uh, go ahead, Stacy. Do you see an increase of uh, also difficulties in the relationship um, when children are are or, you know our kiddos are in the mix of you know because there is more time that has been with the with the kiddos and are you seeing some some struggles that parents are having in that? I do because I think I think a lot of parents. Uh, at least I as a parent, and I think a lot of parents, they, they think about how do we in some ways uh, protect our kids from the challenges that we're experiencing as adults. And so when we experience challenges as adults, and uh, you know, there have been a good number of kids who've been doing school from home or have been spending more time at home, uh, it, it becomes a little trickier to do that. And so I think that it's compounded by, by partners who have kids at home who are having to say, okay, how can we do this togetherness, separateness thing and deal with these, uh, these little ones that sometimes increase our stress levels to begin with, right? So I think that's a, that's a big deal that comes up for a lot of people. And so it's, it's not just the partnership that's at, that's at stake, but it's, it's the broader family system and how people are creating new ways of, of being together that's really good, uh, primarily for the partnership and, and then for the kids. I'm a, I'm a big fan of sort of a partner-centered family uh, rather than a child-centered family. And I know that some people have uh, disagreements with that, but I do think that's, a, that's an important way to think about how you go about creating health in the system is saying, we've got to do something with ourselves as individuals, our partnership, before we can really attend to what's going on with this broader system and, and meeting our kids' needs where they are. Because, you know, clearly the kids have been impacted by the pandemic as well. And of course, in general, they're much more resilient than we adults, but, uh, but it's, been, it's been a little tricky for them. And, and for those who have had uh, challenges with screen time, uh, I think those challenges in some ways have, have just increased. When you're- when oh, Go ahead, sorry. When you're working with, um, I guess, parents or couples that have really lost focus with that partnership and it becomes all about that kid, what, what are some of the obstacles that let, keep bringing that issue up and what do you encourage them to really focus on to move them past that? Hmm. 
Uh, I think a primary obstacle that can bring that up is that the kids, and I hate to use this provocative language, but I will, uh, oftentimes are used as a way to handle distress between the partners. And so uh, part of part of what I, I've been doing with partners and even families is helping helping the partners really assess their basic like for each other. You know, I always talk to partners about like, love, and want. I think all three are very important uh, and they're very different. Uh, but if you don't like your partner, then it's I think it's pretty easy to get more child-centered in your approach to your family. And of course, the children may not understand that cognitively, but they can frequently feel it emotionally. And so I think it's important to, again, to have folks sort of increase their sense of awareness about how they have arranged their family system and, and to see what possibilities might exist in, in handling this, uh, this distance or this dislike that has happened between the, the partners. So it's a, it's a little delicate to do that, but I think it's, um, you know, again, I'm a big fan of sort of the, the hierarchy between the parents and the kids, because I, I tell parents all the time, I said, kids understand you physically and they can understand you emotionally, but they don't really understand you conceptually or cognitively or psychologically, at least the depth that you're that you're used to speaking about. And and so uh, oftentimes kids will feel that sort of they'll feel that pressure, they'll feel that burden, they'll feel that, that sense of cohesion. And of course, for those who have a, oh, a push the envelope spirit, uh, they may even use that uh, against the parents. So I, I've, I've frequently seen that, that the kid recognizes, wow, I've got a lot of emotional influence in this system. And what happens if I push here? Or what happens if I push there? Um, so that, that's something else that has to be dealt with systemically. Did you have a question? Yeah, I just did. As far as what are some recommendations or um, maybe tools that you offer families of, you know, bringing that unity uh, into the family dynamic system and being able to, you know, have a better sense of, you know, healthier communication, um, you know, being able to set healthy boundaries. Um. So I think it's really important to think about from a, not only from a partnership perspective, but also from a family perspective, like you're talking about, Stacy. this idea of what can the three or four or 10 of us do together that we really enjoy, that that's fun. Uh, and that doesn't explicitly involve um, screens. And again, I don't have any uh, strong objection to the presence of screens in our lives. I think they're here to stay. And they certainly have done a lot of good for us in, in many ways. But I do think it's, it's interesting to have a conversation with a family about, hey, if you had to create three things that your family likes to do, all four of you or all six of you or all whatever of you, uh, what would those things be? And, and how often are you doing them? Um, and, and so that's, that, that's something that I encourage folks to really talk about uh, because it helps the parents think about how can I really stay connected to my kids and at the same time uh, honor my partnership, honor the fact that we're not the same, honor the fact that I probably shouldn't attempt to be friends with my kids just yet. Uh, you know, honor the, all those sort of details about what maybe a, a family, uh, a healthy family looks like. Do you think that, you know, those, those family units that, you know, have struggled, 
Do you think that they have, when, when you ask, can you identify, say three things that, you know, all of you can come together and enjoy and for the connection, do you find that they get like, uh, like stuck where they can't, they can't think of even anything and they're looking for you to say, well, what about this? What about that? I do think you're absolutely right. Uh, that, that there are a fair number of partners and families that have gotten stuck with that question. And so at, at times like that, I typically will put the onus back on to the parents and say, uh, how can we think about this? Um, how can we think about this for, for you as individuals? Because I think for some people, and maybe a small percentage of people, they don't have a sense of what doing fun, exciting stuff looks like for themselves. You know, it's almost like they've got They've got these roles in their mind. I'm a worker. I'm a partner. I'm a parent. Uh, how about like someone who likes to have fun or someone who likes to do something, right? So I think sometimes it's about increasing that self-awareness for individuals and then having the parents lead with that. Well, let's talk about some options to your point, right? This idea of uh, what, does a, what does a game night look like? What does a family walk look like? Um, what does, a, what does a, a learning experience look like around birds or trees or flowers or you know so I, I encourage folks to think about what really what really interests them I love when families cook together I think that's a great example of something that can be uh, exciting and, and a learning experience and and it also challenges you know people who have controlling tendencies or uh, micromanagement tendencies because there's a lot of delegation involved in that right you know, that's one of the things I noticed in the workplace was among young people, the lack of ability to work within a team. And so I always encourage parents to incorporate those teenagers into the household dynamic to help them build value. When I'm working with teens, to skip topics here just a bit, one of the things that I see is this miscommunication between parents and teens and the inability to really connect together when they're having communication. Um, how do you encourage teens and adults to interact together and find that line of communication that works for both of them? Wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I was thinking that too. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we have an hour. <laughs> I, 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 I'll try to I'll try to answer it in a very abridged fashion. Look, look I think I think the biggest complaint I hear from teens uh, around communication with their parents uh, is this idea that uh, when I share a part of myself, uh, sometimes I I, I feel dismissed, uh, I feel threatened, I feel attacked, uh, I feel criticized. And so in some ways, I really like to talk to parents about what does it look like to do what, uh, you know, what John Gottman, for example, calls turning toward with your teens, which is essentially when your teens speak to you, when you're sharing with you, uh, how do you actually encourage more sharing? How do you become a, a space where you can actually hear from them without automatically having to criticize or guide uh, or without um, more provocatively dismissing them. In other words, having them feel like they're not being heard at all. Um, and I think that if you can do that and mix that with 
the natural teaching and guidance that goes on with, with being a parent, that can be really helpful. And sometimes the two don't go hand in hand. Like I would much rather you hear something provocative from your teen and keep your mouth shut and say, you know, I really, really appreciate your sharing that. And it's, uh, it's a little shocking for me to hear it, but I, I'm so glad that you felt safe to share it. And then you can go back into your closet or go back wherever you want to and think about how you might want to guide or teach. But sometimes those two don't have to be simultaneous. In other words, you can have the sharing from the teen and you can keep your mouth shut uh, outside of some sort of uh, compassionate validation. And then later think about, okay, so what's the value here that I'd like to kind of guide my, my teen on? Um, you know, mom, I, uh, you know, I smoked some pot last night and it was, it was great. And I just, I think I'm going to do it again. And like, man, I really, really appreciate your sharing that with me. And I'm, I'm glad that you feel safe enough to talk to me about that. And I'd like to talk to you about that a little bit more later, but I just, I'm glad you told me. And that requires us as adults and as parents to kind of set ourselves aside and say, now, wait a minute, this may not be the time to say, well, you know, it is illegal in the state of Texas or, you know, whatever you could say at that point that might just sort of shut things down. Um, and I'm not suggesting that you, you, you shouldn't be directive with your teens, but I am saying if you want to foster a relationship with a lot of teens, the thing that's going to shut down that fostering is basically to say, mm, that's wrong. That's bad. Don't do that. You know, uh, especially at the moment that they're being brave enough to share it with you. Do you find that to work with, with, you know, couples as well? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. So that's, that's exactly what uh, Gottman did in his love lab years and years ago is that he found these three styles coming up with partners. He called them turning toward, turning away and turning against. And of course, the turning away represents dismissiveness. The turning against rec uh, rec uh, represents criticism. And the turning toward is just simply uh, a validation, a response to what your partner has said to you. And of course, there's this big duh factor in most social science research, but it's like, yeah, when you actually let your partner know that you're listening to her and him, that's good. If you criticize them or if you dismiss them, like say, for example, they're talking about the beautiful sunset and you're talking about the Wall Street Journal, uh, then, then it's almost like parallel play, but it doesn't feel very fun. No. I tell you, communication was one of the biggest struggles in our relationship. And, you know, Dr. Coffey helped us figure out how to have that communication between each other, but more importantly, how to um understand how you're being in that communication i think that's extremely important because a lot of times we can't see ourselves at how we're communicating and i think that's extremely important and um you know that awareness that you brought to the table it, it spoke volumes for you know us and that's why we wanted to have you on this program today because you know just these simple things of learning how to connect with each other is so important and I find that um, it's extremely beneficial. And Stacy and I talk a lot about self-awareness and how important do you feel self-awareness or self-love is in a relationship? Ooh, really, really important. So like I, as I told you, Stephanie uh, and Stacy, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I specialize in emotional intelligence. And of course, one of the key features of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And of course, uh, by connection, self-love. 
Uh, and so I think it's I think it's critically important. Um, and it comes up in communication all the time. It comes up in tone. It comes up in how responsive you are. I was working with a couple just yesterday, and there was uh, one of the partners said to the other, uh, I don't think that you value family time. And of course, the other partner responded in a rather defensive manner. But the, the first partner wasn't terribly good at expressing his want, which is to simply say, I want more of you. I want more of family time. That was the message behind his statement. And of course, the second partner wasn't very good at, at essentially saying, rather than feeling attacked, which is about self-awareness, right? I'm gonna look at my partner and say, I think you want more of me and more family time. And I, I wanna figure out how we can make that happen. And that's a very different way to respond to something that can feel sort of attacking, right? It's just to, to, to feel that sting. Oh, wait, you mean you don't think I, I value family time? Say, wait, what's, what's the message here? He wants more of me. He wants more of us. And then to find out. Ah, lost you. And then to find out uh, what, what you can do with that in a meaningful way to really uh, use that self-awareness and then use that self-love to say, this is not about me. This is not about being attacked. This is about what, what we're trying to create together. And that, that means that that self-awareness and that self-love can be uh, an add-on to the partnership. You know, it can really, it doesn't stay self-absorbed, in other words. It really is, is part of how you use that self-compassion to create stronger relationships and, and to serve others. I love that. Stacey, I think we have time for another question if you have any that you want to ask. Well, I guess, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot is like the self-discovery journey and, you know, which in the self-discovery journey for me means, you know, uh, um, the emotional intelligence of the awareness that you're, you're speaking of. And do you, as far as when you're trying to build a or rebuild a connection with your partner, is it, is it imperative for you to also take that self-discovery journey as you're, as you're trying to re rebuild that relationship? Or is it something that maybe you should take the self-discovery um, journey to be able to take some accountability and ownership and then jump into the mending and uh, re-entering into a healthier relationship with your spouse or, or partner? This question comes up a lot. Uh, I think one way to think about your question might be something like, uh, what does uh, individual work or even individual therapy look like uh, in contrast to couples therapy or couples work? I guess my short answer, and of course, this is something that's <clears throat> uh, mostly women at a women's shelter early 90s I worked with taught me that, that if, if there's a, enough security and safety in a partnership to actually allow your individual process to happen within that partnership, in other words, within couples therapy or couples work, I think that can be, that can be ideal because a lot of people from disparate histories can come together and they can actually share their process together. And so they're doing two things at once. They're actually improving and increasing the bond between the couples and between the partners 
and they're getting their own individual shit taken care of. So, you know, I think that's, that can be ideal. Um, but I do think that for a lot of people, the, 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 the trauma, the triggering, the, the hints of disempowerment, the, the hints of compromises of safety or compromises of trust that exist within the dynamic for reasons that may not be always explicitly related to the dynamic, by the way, uh, can, can create too much threat to do that individual work in, in, in partnership. And so in situations like that, I think that individual work can be, can be uh, a, little, a, a little healthier if, if done individually. Um, but the extent to which you can share that with your partner or the extent to which you can feel safe in sharing that with your partner, I think is a, is a great thing. Um, again, most of the time, I, I think if there's that safety and security in partnership, then to have your partner have a subjective sense of what's going on for you as you're working on your own stuff. Wow, that can really increase the connection, increase the bond. Now, the downside of that, of course, is, is for those people who are a little bit more malevolent in their dynamic style, that can also increase the likelihood of future exploitation. So uh, you, want to, you want to be very cautious about that in doing your own individual or, or couple's work is to make sure that you're not uh, leaving people out uh, in that space too, too vulnerable, too susceptible to, to something that might happen in the future. So it's a, it's a, very, it's a very careful process. Thank you. I wanna thank you. And you know, more importantly, you know, you're here in the Dallas area. How can someone get a hold of you? What type of services do you provide? Do you just do it in person, Zoom calls? Like what types of services do you provide? Wow. Uh, so uh, best way to get a hold of me is my, my main phone number. Of course, it's at both my primary websites, which are drcoffee.net and uh, my coaching website, which is adleycoaching.com, A-D-L-E-Y coaching.com. Um, I provide therapy only in the state of Texas. Uh, I provide coaching internationally. Uh, and then I do a lot of speaking um, nationally and internationally as well. Uh, so that's, um, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you do take insurance for your therapy, correct? I don't. I don't. I, oh. uh, I, I've stopped doing that about uh, two or three years ago. Uh, I have a, a very small handful of folks who I've been seeing for a long time who've uh, uh, bargained me for a, some sort of sliding scale fee, but, but otherwise it's, uh, it's all, all fee for service. Great, great. Stacy, you want to add anything? No, I, I just wanted to clarify um, one thing as far as, you know, individuals that are setting up sessions with you or, or looking to set up sessions with you, um, do they have the opportunity to do like a telehealth at, or an in-person? And um, are you on a waiting list? I am. Uh, I do have an active waiting list. Uh, I am currently one day a week in my Dallas office on Tuesdays. I think I'm going to have to add a second day back on Thursday um, because I've got about, I don't know, 11 or 12 appointments on a Tuesday and I don't want to do any more on one day. Uh, but I only work Monday through Thursday, typically uh, outside of my speaking engagements from approximately 10 to 7. And so Mondays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, uh, at least currently, are virtual 
Tuesdays in person. Okay, great. And how long do you think you'll be considered on that waiting list? Well, you know, I'm, I'm generally able to get folks in within uh, a couple of weeks because there's so many changes from week to week around my schedule. So uh, I, uh, I'm pretty committed to getting folks in within two weeks uh, if, if I can. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Yep. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Coffey. It's been such a pleasure. And, you know, Stacey and I really appreciate you donating your time because our mission is just to bring more awareness to a lot of the social issues and emotional issues that people are having. And today I found very helpful. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. I really value what the two of you are doing for your viewership and have uh, felt privileged to be part of this today. Thank you so much. Uh -huh. And Thank as you. always, let's bring us together with uh, bringing our community into equal and unity and smile and be kind. And hey, I love it. Yeah, and do better, be better, and treat people better. We'll catch you later. See you okay, later. Bye. Bye.